The better you understand and manage emotions, your own and those of people around you, the more you build a growing toolkit to help you navigate relationships, change, and disruption. Emotional intelligence is also a key lever for personal and professional success. Want to grow your emotional intelligence? In my flagship online training program, the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence Courses, you can develop and deepen your skill set with the 12 crucial competencies in my emotional intelligence model. You can learn more at DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. That's one word, DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. And you can use coupon code podcast to save $50 on registration. Can you think of another example of a time that you've had really strong feelings? Right now, during the coronavirus, I'm having a really strong feeling. It's a good feeling and it's bad because I'm glad we're not going to school because if I went to school, I'd get really sick. And I'm sad that I don't get to see my friends or family. Has it been helping you to think about that? How the two sides of the coronavirus and how it helps you in some ways and hurts Oh, it helps me because it helps me from not getting sick. And it doesn't help me because I'm not learning right now because I'm not at school. Well, I was learning because I was doing math at home, but I'm still not learning much from on Zoom calls. Yeah, it's a very different kind of learning, huh? Distance learning. I'm Daniel Goldman. And I'm Hanuman Goldman. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Today, we're looking at what we call social emotional learning, or SEL, why it's even more important for kids in times of uncertainty and change, and how educators and parents can continue to support SEL development when their kids are going to school online. So uh, my children are five and three right now. So the five-year-old is in kindergarten and she's been online in kindergarten the whole year. And keeping kindergartners engaged in a computer screen is an absurd prospect. The teacher's amazing, does an amazing job of it, but wrangling, virtually wrangling, whatever it is, 12 five-year-olds is uh, an unreasonable prospect. You know, Sujata can get on Zoom for a little bit and check in, sort of touch in with the class and peers that she will meet next year. But this year, there isn't a social element to it. They're not developed in the way that they interact casually through the screen. We're very, very fortunate. We were able to get involved in like a makeshift daycare. So through that, the kids are getting some social interaction and that I feel solid about that. But at five years old, I'm just not as worried about math and reading and uh, these things as I am developing interest in learning and uh, interest in the world around them and interest in themselves. I trust my kids if I give them the inner tools to work with, that they will 
become themselves in exactly the way that they are meant to be. And it's not my job to tell them who they are, but it is my job to create the conditions, at least, for them to develop the capacities and the tools to navigate the world and thrive in the world. So, you know, these are my grandkids and and I love them and I want them to grow up really, you know, with everything that they'll need to navigate life. And it's important, of course, that kids learn academics. There's no question about that. But the other side of it is very important too, and that is how you handle your emotions, how you get along with other kids, how you empathize, how you tune into them. And kids learn that from their interactions with other people. So being online, as Hanuman was saying, is just not the same as being in a classroom with other five-year-olds. We don't know what the outcome will be. Actually, I'm optimistic because the brain and children are very adept at making up for lost time and uh, learning lessons quickly that they have skipped, particularly in their emotional and social lives. So I, I also feel that it's a very uh, big omission for schools to ignore this aspect of development. That's why we develop social and emotional learning to be sure every child would have a chance to get it right. For a long time, schools had a major gap. They were focusing on academics and on cognitive abilities, but ignoring social emotional abilities, which have far reaching benefits in both school and life. There was a major study done looking at schools that have SEL programs and those that don't. This massive study of 270,000 students found there were several positive effects of participating in SEL. First, pro-social behavior, like behaving well in class, liking school, good attendance, increased by 10%. At the same time, antisocial behavior, things like misbehaving in class, violence, bullying, dropped about 10%. Most interesting, was that academic achievement test scores went up by 11%. Of course, these benefits flow into kids' lives outside of a school setting, having positive social implications in their interactions with their friends and their families at home. Social emotional learning also takes advantage of a neurological fact that the human brain grows and develops and becomes anatomically mature throughout childhood and adolescence, ending in the mid-20s. This is a window of opportunity for us to help our children get self-management, self-awareness, empathy, and social skills from an early age, and that will help them thrive through their entire lives. So far on the show, we looked at a few aspects of emotional intelligence and some ways they play out in adult lives at work and at home. But what does emotional intelligence look like for children, particularly in K-12 education, both generally and specifically during this pandemic? As a parent, I want to understand what skills and orientation our kids need to develop in order to be happy and thrive throughout their life. Dan explores this question and more 
in our first act. I'm Daniel Goleman, and my guest today is Linda Lantieri, quite a wonderful old friend, someone I've known ever since I got interested in the area of emotional intelligence, because Linda was a pioneer in what we now call social-emotional learning. But when I first was writing for the New York Times about this and then wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, I turned to Linda because back then she was with an outfit called Educators for Social Responsibility. And uh, really, that was one of the prototypic uh, SEO curricula, even though it didn't have that label. Linda, first, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Dan. And uh, if, if we could go back in time, uh, let's, I'd, I'd love to hear from you, your progression from, you know, the, those early, early days before we had the term social-emotional <laughs> learning. Uh, to what you're doing now and, and what the highlights have been in between. Yeah. I was actually at the Central Board of Ed at the time you and I met, and I was working with Educators for Social Responsibility. And uh, that particular school district had many members that went to this conference on living in the nuclear age and the trauma that was happening for kids around that. And... Uh, this particular school district got together and invited myself and the executive director, Tom Roderick of Educators for Social Responsibility. Also, there was a growing violence problem. And so the combination of all of that, we began to create the curriculum Resolving Conflict Creatively. And that was going on for a while until you and I met um, through a very unfortunate incident. There was a shooting at Thomas Jefferson High School in Brooklyn, New York. And as the chancellor at that time, I actually had to go to the teacher who was shot, who was already in a hospital uh, room with uh, a bullet in his head. He lived. Another student was shot and did not live. And uh, there I was trying to help the principal and young people make sense out of that. And you were a writer at the New York Times at the time, as you remember. Uh, as I remember it, I wrote an article and I used the term emotional literacy That's for right. the first time. Uh, then what happened, Linda? Well, what happened is you talked about our program and we connected. And then not long after that, a small group of us, including the both of us, and Carnegie Foundation at that time and Tim Shriver and Eileen Rockefeller-Growald and a couple of others uh, came together and began to ask ourselves, does this set of knowledge and concepts need to be a field? And is it a field? And then your book came out, of course, Emotional Intelligence, and that changed everything. And we began to at least be aware of the role that emotions are playing in our lives. And of course, as you know, we continue to meet in, in this group in a very informal way. And uh, it eventually became CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Well, I, I'd like to say there, uh, one of the valuable members was Roger Weisberg. Absolutely. Who was at Yale then, who was a community Absolutely. psychologist and a researcher. Yeah. And Roger made sure that this movement was backed up by well-done research, which I exactly. think was one of its strengths from the start. And there was also Mark Greenberg, who had right. the prototype also. Once we started, though, 
it became a magnet, wouldn't you say? People Absolutely. came out of the woodwork. I was working in 14 different school districts in the country. And at that point, uh, we were thinking whole school, whole district model. We were thinking in that way already then. Several of the early SEL programs were on the right track. But we needed a bigger guidance around how this field could grow and especially how it could grow based on the research that we began to have. So that was very key for Castle to play that role in the field. There's no question about it. I think it's important for our listeners to explain what SEL is. There are five main uh, dimensions. One is self-awareness. One is managing your emotions. Another is empathy, understanding what other people feel. And then the fourth is healthy relationships that come out of all of those first three. And then using that to make good personal decisions in your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like uh, for a 12-year-old or 14-year-old, it might be, how can I say no to drugs and keep my friends? Right. You know, and one of the things I found when I visited an early program was one that Roger Weisberg had designed for the New Haven schools called Social Development, uh, is that the kids there loved it because it was about them. It was about their problems. And I think that that's always been a strength, is that teachers find they can teach better because kids can manage themselves better. And students find, hey, this is helping me in my life. Exactly. Exactly. It's life skills, really, isn't it? Yes. Uh, It's things we all need, no matter what. And, um, And even more so today, needless to say, of what is going on now in our world. Uh, well, the question. Uh, I remember you helped me visit a school that you had been advising, I believe, and they were doing something called Breathing Buddies, which was from a, a audio that I did for you with a, a book that you had designed for this use, uh, where I, I uh, help kids focus on their breath and watch it rise and fall. It was basically mindfulness for seven-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. They loved it. But I think that one of the things that is striking about that school, I remember a teacher said, one day a girl came in very upset. I said, what's wrong? And she said, I just saw someone who was shot. And the teacher said to the class, how many of you know someone who's been shot? Every hand went up. Yeah, well, you, you're thinking of a, a school that's been, in, uh, been doing the work of SEL for a long time. And they live in a neighborhood that is really high poverty and... Um, and low in, in the resources that they need. And, um, and they're uh, also really working hard um, to be there for kids, you know. And yes, all of the kids in that neighborhood probably have seen uh, something like a shooting. And it's trauma that kids are living with today, uh, a variety of kinds of trauma. In some cases, it's sustained trauma, you know, that's poverty. Uh, As some of those young people were experiencing, that was a sustained way of living that is traumatic. And I think certainly emotional connectedness can buffer some of that and social connectedness. And then some of the skills we develop, particularly around regulating what's coming up in their body, knowing how to get to that resilient zone, that calm zone, and know what that feels like in the body. 
You know, one of the things we know about resilience, as we said before, that it's not a, a single factor. You know, we are, we feel different levels of resilience. So resilience is not a specific amount that we all have. You know, when the COVID virus hit, um, we were all at different levels of resilience. Some of us had contributed to the bank of our own resilience quite a bit. And so we started to roll with the punches, but other people clearly benefited from social emotional learning. Before the COVID experience happened, uh, we were dealing with the first pandemic, which was the racial inequity. And so depending on your race, quite honestly, and the experiences you've had with that, whether or not you as a teacher uh, are of color and have to deal with a microaggression, et cetera, or not. And then this hits both of them together, the dual pandemic. And for some teachers, if they were already having a tough time, they already were experiencing trauma of some kind, there's not much left. And so I think uh, we're becoming more aware that we can't go right to the kids as with anything like this. We have to realize that our kids will get as well as the teachers are <laughs> well. And so we have to stop sometimes and say, what self-care is happening for the teachers? Can we provide some of that? Will we provide some of that as, as, as part of PD? And we try to do the best we can, given whatever the trauma is. So you're mentioning two kinds of trauma kids are facing today. One is kids are growing up in poverty with a lot of violence around them and maybe in their lives. The other is the collective trauma of staying home, COVID, right. Right. being afraid of the virus, all of that. Absolutely. And uh, how could uh, this kind of program, social emotional learning, help kids become more resilient with these kinds of trauma? Well, I think, first of all, we have to be aware that we could do this virtually. It's unfortunate that we use the word socially distant. We really mean physically distant. You In know, our family, we call it a friendly distance. I think we should call it friendly or physically distant. Yeah. And the word socially or emotionally, because that's not what we want to do. We want to be emotionally close, right? We want to even be socially close. So I don't know how we got into social distancing, you know, versus it's physical distancing. That's what we're asking. Six feet of physical distancing. Socially, I want to be connecting to you in some way, you know, and teachers are doing that very strongly. And SEL programs, so many of them are having young people talk to each other, are engaging lessons that can happen also online. Could you give an example of what one of them might be? Sure. Just the other day, um, I, I uh, saw, a uh, uh, I heard of actually, one of the classes that were doing an activity I do all the time called What's the News? It actually comes from Responsive Classroom. You say good afternoon and the kid uses their name to a kid. Let's say good afternoon, Thomas. And Thomas says good afternoon back to Susan. And then Thomas says, what's the news? And um, 
you know, we could do it even right now. You want to do it? <laughs> so that opens a conversation between just, kids. You know, and then they invite the next person. But basically, a lot of the, the rituals around getting to know one another, a lot of the rituals about communication that are part of actual curricula of SEL are the things we should be using, really. We need to be using, and many teachers are using. So uh, is there anything trauma-specific in that mix? I think more and more um, teachers are becoming trauma-sensitive and therefore healing-centered in their work. And by that, I mean uh, in some curricula, as uh, you perhaps know a little bit of, called the C learning curricula, which is the social, emotional, and ethical learning out of Emory University. Uh, there's some curricula that really, really pays attention very directly. You know, we have the adverse childhood experiences. Uh, what, what is an example of an adverse childhood experience? Um, alcoholism in the family, abuse, of, abuse and neglect, divorce, so we found out from something called the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experience Study, that, wow, but when our kids get to fifth grade, they have two or three of the 11 of those. All kids have had trauma. So as a result, I think we, we teach more through that lens. And the reason I brought up the C curriculum is that that teaching is very direct in that they teach about the resilient zone, the low zone, the high zone, how to get into the resilient zone. They teach kids things that I wish I would have learned when I was a kid. Like what? So one of them is grounding. And grounding is simply using a physical object in some way to literally ground, to touch. It might be a piece of jewelry you care about, or it might be a wall that you go back and forth on when you're feeling a little agitated. And now we actually have that in hallways. We have um, two little places where kids can put their feet and they push against the wall. And it says something like, can you, can you do five? pushes against the wall and back, see how you feel, you know? That's an example of grounding. So is that one of the things you find most interesting in K to 12 education these days? Yes, that is one of the things I'm very excited about. And also uh, much more of a focus on equity and cultural competence. What would that look like K to 12? K to 12 would look like first, uh, making sure kids of all ages have a clearer history of what has happened in our country in particular, particularly around race, slavery, etc. Um, that we have an historical knowledge of how socially created race is and all of those things. Then do things that are more culturally competent, where we share our backgrounds with each other, where we tell each other what is helpful and what isn't helpful, where we begin to have more of a sensitivity toward each other. And that work has been very, very meaningful. And uh, 
you know, lately, as you probably know, I've been doing work with uh, higher level uh, leaders in the field of education. Uh, you know, when leaders get up to a certain place, you know, they're head of SEL of a whole district, it's sort of like, well, what's their professional development? You know, right. people forget that they need. And we have a wonderful cadre of these leaders every other year with our program in transformative educational leadership. And it's been great uh, to really support those leaders in those threads. So what do you think is needed to grow the SEL field? Well, I think what's needed to grow the SEL field is what we have been starting to do, uh, which is to really, really pay attention to issues of racial justice. In the SEL world, uh, there's five competencies. We're looking at each of those competencies and asking ourselves, what would it mean if we were culturally competent in that? Linda asked me to uh, give a talk via Zoom to her group of transformational education leaders. These are people who are involved in SEL in one way or another uh, and have a high position in their school district, their administrators, sometimes their teachers. I was struck by how diverse that group is. That itself is very important, that the people who are leading this movement and who are speaking for it embody difference. One of the messages that you want to deliver in SEL is a comfort with diversity and how natural that is, how normal it is. SEL is the natural container for uh, dealing with bias, for uh, improving diversity, for advocating for inclusion, because these are social issues and they're emotional issues. Uh, they're not cognitive academic issues, actually. They have to do with how we relate to other people and to uh, how we have and act on or don't uh, our own biases or even implicit unconscious biases. What she leads with here, I think, is just so important and it aligns with personal transformation and, and in this way society uh, goes through the same thing and that's just around truth we we can't transform we can't uh we can't become something new until we are honest with ourselves about who we are and where we've come from and that's true in personal psychology and i think that that's true in uh society as well and you can see that with truth and reconciliation uh, in Rwanda, or, uh, you know, these places that have really uh, gone through this, this process of, this painful process of bringing the truth of our situation to light so that it can be properly addressed. And until we do that, it's just sitting in the shadows, whispering in our ears. Initially, when we were developing this episode, we set out to talk about social-emotional learning at a time when millions of kids had been home, attending school online, and missing out on valuable time with their peers. 
But equally important is to look beyond COVID to understand the social and emotional conditions impacting students and educators every day that make SEL difficult and that have been amplified by the COVID pandemic. And also how SEL can be an important component of addressing some of these very issues. In Act 2, first-person plural correspondent Gabby Acosta reports. As Linda says in Act 1, COVID-19 isn't the only pandemic we've been facing. Pervasive bias, inequity, and racism are a disease of their own. They seep through our systems, impacting people's ability to access resources, opportunities, and cultivate greater resilience. Our team wanted to take a deeper look at a specific example where SEL is being applied to create more access and inclusion for all students in our education system. In the next act, I speak with Amber Pleasant, a social and emotional learning, SEL, specialist in Austin Independent School District, which she calls ISD. Amber tells us about the journey to integrate SEL, culturally responsive pedagogy, and distributive leadership as tools for addressing systemic oppression across her district. Here's my conversation with Amber. So I wanted to start with a couple of definitions, actually. You, um, we talked about transformative SEL. Could you actually define for those who don't know what transformative SEL mm-hmm. is? And also, why is it different than just SEL? Mm. Well, Castle does a great job of defining transformative SEL. Here's what stands out to me. You know, SEL it's is a process and there's the the original definition really focuses on the competencies, right? And um of self-awareness and social awareness and relationship skills, self-management, right? Transformative SEL acknowledges that there are oppressive systems and structures that exist and that people need to work in relationship with each other to be able to approach equity challenges. Why is it necessary to adapt transformative SEL and what existed before what we now call transformative SEL? As an SEL specialist, I get to walk through a lot of campuses, or at least before the pandemic, I got to walk through a lot of campuses and uh, see teachers and kids and, and folks in the learning, in the learning community. And kids experience a lot of injustice. Adults experience a lot of injustice. Injustice makes people feel really big feelings. So one way that that kind of the older version of SEL might approach that is like, well, you just need to manage. You need to manage those strong feelings. Transformative SEL instead acknowledges that it is entirely justified to feel angry, frustrated, hurt when you are being marginalized and oppressed and and in the face of injustice. And so I think that's a really big, big difference is understanding that and acknowledging as well that, you know, adults have to commit to continuing their own social and emotional learning development and that the system and structures 
that we work within, we have to pay attention to those. We have to shift the practices within schools, within school systems, within our communities, so that we're not seeing so many injustices. So we can't predict which kids will succeed, which kids will be disciplined. We shouldn't be able to have these predictive factors, right? And so transformative SEL is attentive to the need for systemic shifts and changes and evolutions. And it's not just about the, the individual child um, or even adult who, who needs to change. Is it different than social justice? It's hmm, a good question. <sighs> yeah, um, it, it's different because transformative SEL requires the inside out approach to developing a culturally proficient lens. So there's necessary work, self-reflective work that teachers, educators need to do. And it's not just about getting a diverse set of books in the library, which is more of the kind of multicultural approach or social justice approach that um, we find sometimes happening in schools, you know, kind of more of a topical aesthetic approach versus thinking about just the fact that, that we know culture is a predominant force, right? And people are served in, in varying degrees by the dominant culture. Have you seen the education system have any pushback to the adaptation to transformative SEL? What I've noticed through working with campus facilitators over over a span of, of years and honing in on equity is that they're taking transformative SEL or equity-centered SEL and running with it, right? And that, again, is largely, largely to do with the work of the Cultural Proficiency and Inclusiveness Office in our district, and specifically Dr. Angela Ward's leadership. Where it gets a little trickier is shifting the larger system above the, you know, within the district. One of the sticking points is that we're learning the language, right? Many of us are not super practiced at talking about hard things, period, let alone talking about race, talking about equity, talking about gender. I mean, these are recognizing that oppression exists, acknowledging systemic oppression and the role that schools and school districts play in, you know, creating trauma, right? And so part of the challenge is just figuring out how do we talk about these, these big, big, complex ideas that we're not practiced in talking about and that bring up a whole lot of feelings. So how do we, one, just figure out the language to talk about it? And then how do we also find ways to navigate our discomfort in being able to move through challenging conversations about the shifts and changes that are needed within ourselves and within our system to better support kids. So if I'm understanding correctly, there can be social emotional learning without transformative SEL, but transformative SEL is currently being applied intentionally in your district. Is that correct? 
I would say that there are pockets of people who are deepening the work of transformative SEL, and we have a ways to go. Again, because we're just at a point of learning how to talk about what does this mean, right? Because we're just beginning to have these conversations just over the course of this year in particular, I would say, um, where we're using the language of transformative SEL. And we're talking about what is the role of the competencies in transformative SEL. Some of the language we've been using is equity-centered SEL or SEL as a leverage for equity. So there's a lot of lingo kind of floating in the air and we're trying to orient ourselves around some common understanding of the terms and what they mean for our work. And uh, we don't want to do that in isolation. We want to build that understanding of what we're actually talking about in collaboration with folks that we partner with, teachers and, and families and other departments as well. And so that is slow building work. And it's particularly challenging in the context of not being able to go into schools in the way that we used to. Yes, the work is happening. It's just, it's, you know, it's baby steps. Is there anything else that you would like to share around transformative SEL specifically that you think our audience might need to have explained in depth? One of the things with transformative SEL is getting at the root causes of inequities, and that requires a systemic approach, right? And so I think there have been plenty of people who have been developing an understanding of transformative SEL for years because of being a part of a marginalized group and or dedicating growth and learning to understanding, noticing patterns of inequity and understanding that, hey, we've really got to get at these root causes so that we're not continuing to perpetuate harm. When SEL is not transformative, we can create more harm. I think just even in the example of a child who's upset and is told to manage their emotions, right, or develop a growth mindset, rather than thinking about what are the conditions surrounding this child's experience in this classroom at this time? And how can I form a learning partnership with this child and their family to better understand and cultivate their unique gifts and talents? And knowing that in order to see and appreciate what every individual brings and that all learning is social and emotional and how Culture is key to how kids make meaning of the world. Culture is key to how we all make meaning of the world, right? So if we're doing SEL to kids in isolation of an understanding about our own cultural beliefs and the cultural beliefs of the people that we're interacting with, then, like you said, it's not just blinders. It's not fully seeing a child and not seeing how that child is impacted by the system of the, the classroom, of the school, of the district, of society. And what are the ways in which the teachers, the administrators, the policies, the practices of the institution, what are the ways that all of that interact to counter inequities or you know, or perpetuate those. We have to take the self-awareness piece 
in the organizational awareness piece of general emotional intelligence mm -hmm. and apply it to the classroom. People talk about social awareness in different ways, right? And so if you're talking about social awareness and you're just thinking about how do other people feel around me and how are they impacted by what's happening around me versus thinking about a historical, social, and political context. The National Equity Project has this article on understanding the lens of systemic oppression. And one of the things that it does really well is it breaks down an understanding of oppression as how does that impact us at an individual level? How does that impact us interpersonally, right? And that might be sort of traditionally how we would think about social awareness as the, the individual and the interpersonal but then there's also the systemic and the policies and the practices of the organization. And so for me, all of those competencies have to be filtered through an understanding of the lens of systemic oppression. Because, you know, in the end, we all want to be liberated and we can't be liberated if we're not acknowledging the inequities and the oppression that that exists. What's the danger of not acknowledging the systemic or addressing the systemic challenges in our education system versus thinking about it on a one-to-one -one scale or maybe a one-to-few scale? Well, we just continue to see um, predictive patterns of who is disproportionately disciplined, suspended, who we continue to see disproportionality of black and brown children being over identified for special education. And, you know, if we're not examining our own biases, then it's really easy to continue to just contribute to the subtle racism of low expectations, right? And then we see predictive patterns in terms of literacy rates and graduation rates and attendance because there's a disconnect. And the heart of it is the relationships, but relationships don't exist in a vacuum. There are always power dynamics. At play, there's always the dynamics of difference involved in every single interaction that exists. And so if we're not intentionally addressing how those dynamics of difference, how those power dynamics play out in our daily interactions and interrogating them at an individual, interpersonal, systemic, institutional level, at all those levels, then we're contributing, you know, we just are contributing. We're just falling into these patterns that perpetuate inequities. And we just see it happen from year to year to year. And now seven years out since this uh, initiative started in your district, what do you think are the biggest shifts that have happened over time? How did the district transform on all levels? And I have to say the district is transforming, right? There's a campus that I have supported for a long time. It seemed like every single time that I walked through the front doors, a child was being restrained. If you've ever seen, if you've ever witnessed a child being restrained by adults, it's alarming. You know, your heart rate goes up just if you're watching. So if you're that child or you're one of the adults involved in that restraint, it's a traumatic experience. And so we had a lot of conversations about shifting the approach to discipline, right? And that at the root started with shifting every aspect of the relationship between adults and students. And these were, you know, adults who really loved, loved the kids. This was a really complex situation. 
the majority of the teachers on that campus were white. The majority of the students were brown and black. And there wasn't a conversation happening about that at the time. We began to have those conversations. The steering committee, which was made up of campus coaches and teachers and counselor. And I really saw my work as building capacity of that leadership team, the steering committee, those folks to be able to be the ones who are providing professional learning for their campus to enter into this dialogue. That if I was coming in as an outside person, it wasn't going to make sense. It wasn't going to work. They were already dismissive of district folks coming into their campus. It was a kind of a protective nature because they knew their discipline data was bad. They knew that their academic data didn't look good. There was a lot of sort of a heavy district presence and it really needed to be the folks on the ground who were making those changes and identifying and defining what changes needed to happen anyway, right? So over time, I would work with the steering committee and we would design professional learning together. We would co-facilitate and then I would slowly back away until they were really facilitating the professional learning on their own over a couple of years, took a couple of years, right? At the same time, they were working on campus-wide goals to rethink their approach to discipline, to really focus on relationships. They decided to invest in responsive classroom training so that everyone on their campus would have an opportunity to practice some other ways of being with students, right? And seven years later, this is a campus that is deeply invested in responsive classroom that was doing virtual morning meetings and sending those to families all throughout the pandemic, really leading, I think, in how they were connecting with families. They're one of very few campuses in the whole district that has a peer mentoring program where every child is in a peer relationship, mentoring relationship with another child in the school. We see peer mentoring relationships with high schoolers and middle schoolers even, but very rare to see it at an elementary level. And they consistently lead anti-bias workshops and send out equity newsletters. And they will also say, like, we still have a, a long way to go, right? We're not trying to like reach some pinnacle, right? Or peak. It's a constant commitment to learning and growing in community with each other. I'm so grateful that that's even a conversation in your district. And it's something that I know others have struggled, educators in particular, have struggled with in their own schools, let alone their own districts. Yeah, I I think it's definitely fair to say the original SEL, the way that many people wrote about SEL and created programs around SEL was white dominant and limited in understanding systemic oppression. And I've been really grateful to notice the shift in the national conversation about social and emotional learning. People like Zaretta Hammond, Dina Simmons, Goldie Muhammad just have contributed greatly to the conversation about the need for this shift. So have folks like Dr. Angela Ward, and members of the equity work group with Castle. These are folks that I'm naming that have been, this wasn't like they woke up one day and they're like, oh, now I see this is SEL, right? It was including the right people in the conversation 
who live marginalized experiences and have done the work of understanding oppression at all its levels and are willing to speak to it. And any recommendation that you might have for how we could approach this better? Well, there's always an agenda. Everything is political. The absence of conversation, the absence of action is a political statement, right? When there were ice raids happening in our city and impacting our students and our families and staff. And some of us on our team were saying, well, look, you know, we can we can root into the our social awareness and recognize that we have to pay attention to what's happening, the harm that's happening to people. And we should be providing resources and being supportive. And for some people to say, well, we can't do that because that's a liberal agenda. That's not our work. That's not our lane. They have to understand that silence causes great harm. Speaking up and encouraging people to speak up against injustice is really important. But not saying anything doesn't mean that you aren't complicit, right? Silence is, is complicit and, and, and violent, right? And so those are really hard conversations to have because sometimes people want to feel neutral, right? Talking about harm and how we've contributed to harm feels bad. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, even, you know, way back when I first started learning about SEL, one of the misconceptions was that SEL is all about giggles and you know, unicorns and glitter and rainbows and good feelings. And so there was this sort of real toxic positivity in terms of how we talked about SEL, how people were understanding the way that we talked about SEL. So the impact was this like toxic positivity, like just be happy, positive vibes only, and not recognizing all of the multitudes of feelings that we move through all of the time, right? And so coming from a place of just acknowledging feelings exist beyond happiness and joy, right? And that it is okay and really necessary for us to experience all that range of emotions to let's consider the conditions that contribute to why we feel the ways that we do. So I, 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 I uh, there's a lot of work to do because there are people well-meaning, well-meaning folks who really believe in social and emotional learning as they understand it to be and don't see the harm, only see that talking about oppression creates harm, right? It makes people feel bad. Why would you want to do that? And so are really resistant and think of it as an agenda. But there's an overwhelming number of people who are not just having conversations, um, but following through with action that supports this more transformative and evolving understanding of social emotional learning within a context of understanding historical and social and political contexts of our lives. There's also a piece here, right, about privilege to be able yeah. to um, not hear the truth about yes. existence 
as somebody who has experienced the world in a certain way, I never had the option. A lot of people definitely have less option than I do yep. to, to be experiencing the, the way that they walk through life. In particular, the first system they experience outside their family is school. Yep. So the way they learn to be, they're socialized to the system the people that create that system every day for them aren't aware of how the world operates for them. Yep. And they're not going to be able to learn in the most optimized way. Yeah, I think that's a really, that point about the privilege to not talk about something, not attend to harmful dynamics. You know, we have to push back. Well, if you don't talk about it, what is it that you're trying to protect? Who is it that you're trying to protect? I know those are conversations that I've had in situations where people said to me like, well, I just, it's really hard to have these conversations and people really are struggling with this. Like, okay, well, who's, who's struggling? What are we protecting them from? You know, there's so much here. I feel like we could talk for hours about this. And my sister's involved in this work on a personal level. And she talked to me about how challenging this work is on the ground getting to hear from somebody who gets to see it at every perspective is really pretty incredible because just seeing it applied in the classroom is so difficult when you don't have as much control. And I've heard that pain point from her since she became an FCL coach recently mm -hmm. to trying to work with teachers and educators in her region, recognizing that there is a disconnect school by school and there is a disconnect every hierarchy, every single level within the system. You know, when I work with teachers, a lot of times what they'll say is like, oh, if you, or even when I work with principals, they'll say, have you, you met with the associate superintendents? Have you met with, you know, are you meeting with the district level leaders, the leadership of the district level and board of trustees, for instance, because to shift a system ground up and also you have to be all inclusive. And so, I will say teachers have become early adopters and very enthusiastic, and we've shifted towards transformative SEL largely because of what they've shared with us. So much of the work that we're doing is because of what we've learned from educators in classrooms and from campus leaders. What I'm hearing is that the SEL was happening from both sides, that the, the staff were, were learning and becoming more self-aware and more aware of the way that they were, their unchecked thoughts and feelings were impacting and affecting and driving the way that they were acting with their students. And then the students were benefiting in the way, Dan, that you were talking about internally for their own emotional self-control. And so both of those things were happening, I, I assume. I mean, we, like I said, we can't know, but I think they're both important. I know that the best SEL programs, the ones that work the best, include education for the staff and for the teachers because you're really trying to shift the culture of the school. And that sounds like what went on here too. One thing about SEL, 
uh, for kids who are disadvantaged. There was a study of kids four to eight where they assessed cognitive control and whether a kid learned it or not, and then tracked them down in their 30s. And they found that the kids who had it by the time they were eight um, did better economically and in terms of their health. So there's a long-term advantage kind of leveling the playing field. In fact, it was a stronger factor than the wealth of the family that the kids grew up in. We talk about socioeconomic mm. disparities and also their IQ, it's completely independent, which I think is another reason why it's so important to pay attention to helping kids with their emotional and social abilities, which is what SEL does. I appreciate that Amber emphasized the importance of the role of teachers in SEL. Although the change and adoption of SEL is important at all levels, the teachers are the ones adapting and applying it with kids in the classroom and providing feedback about what works in their unique environment. We wanted to explore this further by taking a look at an educator's experience in the classroom during 2020, when so much disruption happened to the traditional in-person learning environment. Can SEL be done well online? Our correspondent, Elizabeth Solomon, reports in Act 3. Ben Chase is an educator from Noble High School in North Berwick, Maine. The following excerpt is from an article Ben wrote for the Great Schools Partnership earlier this year. What I love about his story is that it highlights just some of the challenges that have arisen for teachers and students over the past year of virtual schooling and how you can lean on social emotional learning to create a better classroom experience, especially during this time. Bringing Humanity to the Virtual Classroom, Lessons Learned from My Desk by Ben Chase. A few weeks ago, I found myself almost yelling at my high school students because they weren't participating in online class. They didn't appreciate it. My frustration came from a place of love and was my attempt at holding them to high expectations. But at 8.30 in the morning, it was decidedly not helpful for my half-awake students while they were still in bed. Though I can see clearly now that my palpable exasperation certainly wasn't a recipe for success. It made a lot of sense to me at the time. Two classes in a row, I cold called student after student and either got silence or almost worse, the classic, uh, what are we doing? I feel like I was giving everything I had and still failing hard again and again. Talking into the void of muted students with their cameras off is disheartening, but many of my students are actually in it, the void. To bring them out, I realized that I had to return to one of my early learnings of teaching during this pandemic. Students show up and engage when it feels good to do so, when it makes them smile and laugh, when they trust that they will leave class in a better mental space than when they arrived. Feeling, as in actual feelings, is an overlooked part of student engagement right now. The sense of belonging and positive connection to others is a large and important part of what school has to offer. If our students are not showing up to and engaging in our online classes, maybe it's because we as teachers have forgotten that. The solution is simple, ensuring that students are happier when they leave our classes than when they arrived. My students keep telling me that it's hard to do work at home because the environment just isn't right. 
What these students seem to be saying is that the feeling of connection to us, their teachers, and to their classmates needs to overcome all of the other negative feelings and easy distractions they have at home. Otherwise, our voices are just more noise coming out of another device. The feelings of belonging and connection, which give our learning communities a center of gravity that pulls students in, are essential to overcome that challenge. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that difficult circumstances and inequities may be the reason many students are disengaged or not showing up at all. For some students, showing up on time for class and participating might be an impossibility. These issues of inequity have rightfully been brought to national attention and should stay at the fore until things change. For the purposes of this school year though, many hardships our students face are what Stanford professors Bill Burnett and Dave Evans would call gravity problems. Like gravity, these circumstances are not necessarily solvable, at least in the short term. They just exist. As a teacher, however, I gain some agency over these circumstances by acknowledging my relationship to them. I can either offer a reprieve or I can exacerbate the problem. If a student was up late into the night listening to an argument in their home, the last thing they need is me to use a similar tone of voice first thing in the morning. As was the case before the pandemic and will be after, the quality of my teaching matters and it's really the only thing I have control over. In just my second year of teaching, with my first cut in half by school closure, the struggle is real and I have an overwhelming amount to learn before I'm a great teacher. In the four months of school so far this academic year, I have had weeks of both success and failure. The only difference is in how I was engaging with my students. Either I made it feel good for them to be in class or I didn't. I learned this lesson the hard way. Before I made the pivot, I started to get stressed, a little less funny and much less fun as a teacher. First, my content wasn't working for my students. Then I wasn't working for my students. It was a double whammy that all came to a head when I was overcome by self-doubt, an internalized belief that I wasn't good enough to do this work. But thanks to some expert coaching from a mentor, I dug for every scrap of motivation I had to adjust my practice and content in order to address my new essential question. How could I get my students to once again feel good when they came to my class? Here are the five adjustments that I now intentionally practice every single day. First, I accept that I'm the emotional leader of my class. In the article, Primal Leadership, the Hidden Driver of Great Performance, Dan Goldman and his co-authors make a compelling argument that any leader's primary focus should be on emotional leadership. He writes, the leader's mood and behaviors drive the mood and behaviors of everyone else. Their mood is quite literally contagious, spreading quickly and inexorably through the business. As a teacher, I am the leader of my class's mood. Do my students feel lighter, freer, and happier when they arrive, and even more so when they leave? Accepting the fact that I am the emotional leader has given me the permission that I needed to step away from my computer a little earlier each day. It makes no difference how perfect my lesson plan is if I'm too tired to be excited about it. Second, I intentionally greet every kid by name when they show up. The reality of distance learning for teachers and students alike, it's very hard to have a sense of the presence of others. Are they there or not there? Are they paying attention? Or are they actually asleep? But when students come in, especially the shy ones, it's a time when I know that I have a moment in which they can feel like their presence is known and appreciated. 
This might cost me a couple of minutes of class time, but it's worth it. Third, I allow time for students to connect with one another. One of the biggest bummers of distance learning is that there is no time between classes for all the high school social awkwardness and beauty to play out. Sure, my students are texting with their core friend group and many are seeing each other in person, but all of those acquaintances and budding friendships are put on hold when there is no time for them. In this teaching reality, there's a clear conundrum because it is impossible to get through content fast enough in a virtual environment. But no amount of content covered matters if my students aren't paying attention to it. A little informal social time is essential because it makes students look forward to my class. I know this to be true from my own graduate studies online. A breakout room with an extra five minutes to chat and connect adds a measurable value to the experience of class. Fourth, I encourage humor. We're all in need of a good laugh these days. If you couldn't tell by now, the problem is that my sense of humor is dry and only provokes a smirk or maybe a chuckle, neither of which I can readily see or hear online. If I want my students to really laugh, I need students to be funny. It can certainly feel like a huge distraction when a student starts to ramp up their humor and take over the online format. When the few kids whose cameras are on are in stitches, there is never a doubt in my mind that it was worth it. Lastly, I end with connection. In the power of moments, the Heath brothers explain that the end of experiences matter more than just about any other part. We remember experiences by their peak moments and by their endings. If I end class in a way that my students feel connected to one another, the content, and to me, they will think fondly of the class as a whole. I don't nail the last five minutes every time, but I plan for them now. I feel immeasurably lighter and more inspired now that I feel like I have found the process that works for me. And I am beyond grateful to work with a team of educators who inspire me daily with their love and kindness for our students and ourselves. I'm very pleased that what I wrote benefited Ben. Basically, the message is something we can ask ourselves no matter what interaction we're having, but particularly for teachers and for leaders, am I leaving people in a better space than before I started? That means that you have an emotional connection and that you as the more powerful person in the relationship are driving the mood of everyone else in the better direction. And you know, the moments kids remember and love when they think about what they learned or didn't learn, are moments of kind of a flow where there's this rapport, where you connect well and the mood is very, very positive. The part of Ben's recount here that I can really relate to is about his self-doubt and the emotional chaos and overwhelm creating the conditions for these difficult emotions, these destructive emotions to bubble over and to not be as easy to check as when they bubble up, when they arise. Because that happens with my children and me. The, I mean, at the height of the lockdown, at the beginning of the lockdown uh, for this pandemic, I was a real beast some days. It was very difficult for me to handle my own internal state. And then, you know, at that time I had a 
two-year-old and a four-year-old, and they also have not yet developed the skills to manage their internal state. So, so there were like, luckily my wife was here, but she was going through a rough time too. There were like four of us in this house that were walking around like little emotional monsters, you know? And uh, so, so I can relate to, to that. And, and slowly I'm trying to develop some of these tools to manage my own communication while I'm, in the midst of a difficult emotion with my children. It's really interesting to hear someone else's journey with that and how they've approached it. I really appreciate that, it's cool. SEL is important under normal circumstances, and these are not normal times. The difficulties and social strain of hybrid learning and ongoing uncertainty mean that paying attention to emotional development and well-being is even more important. Every caretaker plays an important role in that development. So how, as caretakers, are we showing up? Do we notice when our own habits get in the way of how we want to be? In the next episode, Dan talks with Matt Taylor, Matt, a former teacher, is now in the role of professional coach for education leaders. Dan and Matt discuss self-awareness as a key element of working with leadership, whether it's principals, teachers, CEOs, or a leader at any level of an organization. If you're interested in diving deeper into SEL, check out Triple Focus, A New Approach to Education, a book by Dan Goldman and Peter Senge. It offers a lens on education that helps students develop awareness of self, other, and the systems we are a part of. These are the tools that will allow our children to navigate a fast-paced world of increasing distraction and to better understand the interconnections between people, ideas, and the planet. You can find this and other SEL resources at keystepmedia.com slash shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Pippa, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guests, Linda Lantieri, Amber Pleasant, and Ben Chase. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Gabriela Acosta and me, Elizabeth Solomon. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Theme music by Amber Ojeda. Other music by BioUnit. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. 
For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.